special welcome to One Tribe. I want to add my welcome to the welcome you've already received. My name is Mbonisi. I'm part of the leadership team here at One Tribe. And um, as Sean has mentioned, we're kicking off a brand new series today. Uh, it's our Love and Marriage series. So for the next five weeks, we're going to be speaking on the theme of love and marriage. And we're going, we're going to be diving deep into a meaty passage of Scripture. That's Ephesians 5 verses 21 to 33, and uh, we'll be leaning heavily for this series on uh, a book called The Meaning of Marriage by um, New York author and pastor Tim Keller, and we're also leaning on a similar series that was done by another church in our family of churches, Love and Marriage. Everyone's talking about it. How many of the songs on our radio are about love? Our culture has made an idol out of love and marriage, but it is absolutely clueless about how to make them work. Some of you look at your parents' marriage, and in a lot of cases, it either ended up in divorce or it continued in unhappiness. Some of you have first-hand experience from your own marriages and relationships of how tough it is to make love work and to make marriage work. But then sometimes when we get into church and start talking about love and marriage, very often it's rose-colored and sentimental and syrupy. Meanwhile, real love and marriage are anything but that. Love and marriage is not sweet, but it is glorious and tough. On the one hand, it's burning joy and strength, on the other hand, it is blood, sweat, and tears. On the one hand, it's hard-earned victories. And on the other hand, it's humbling defeats. I can see some of the married couples looking at me and thinking, you must be talking about someone else's marriage. Can't be talking about my marriage. Now, just in case you're wondering if this series is for you, this series is for, number one, couples who are trying to deepen or perhaps save your relationship. Number two, it's for dating people who are kind of feeling your way forward, wondering if you want to marry this person, and if you do, how to build in that direction. Number three, it's for divorcees who are trying to make sense of what went wrong. Number four, it's for singles. Yes, singles. Some of you singles, I bet most of you want to get married. But how will you know whether to get married or not? Or who to get married to? Or how to prepare for marriage unless you know what marriage is? Some of you might be fearful of getting... Let me go talk to the single section over here. <laughs> Danston, you might be fearful of getting married. And if you are, it's good to talk about what about marriage makes you fearful and to shed light on that issue from God's word. Lastly, the series is for widows and widowers. I can imagine this being a difficult series for you, but we hope we trust that as you reflect on your own marriage, you'll find yourself thanking God for the marriage he gave you. 
So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians and chapter 5. I've tried to put, um, we've tried to put most of the key verses up on the screen. Now this verse, Ephesians 5 verse 31, is actually a quote from the second chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. The writer of, the, of, of Ephesians, whose name is Paul, quotes it here. And it's not just Paul who quotes it, but when Jesus is teaching on marriage, Jesus quoted it before Paul. That's a lot of airtime for one verse to get. It's in the very first book of the Bible. It's quoted by Jesus and by the Apostle Paul. In other words, it's the most foundational thing the Bible has to say about marriage. I'd love us all to read it out loud together. It's on the screen. One, two, three, go. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. For today, we want to pull two main things out of this verse. We want to look at how marriage is a promise to commitment and how marriage is a promise to prioritize. And we're going to spend the chunk of our morning's message on the commitment, the promise of commitment that marriage is. Our verse says a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That word united literally means to glue or bind yourself to someone. The word means that marriage happens when two people make a God-ordained, exclusive, permanent, public and legal commitment to one another, promising a total sharing of lives. I'm going to say that again because every word is important. Marriage happens when two people make a God-ordained, exclusive, permanent, public, legal commitment to one another, promising a total sharing of lives. Let's break that down. Marriage is God-ordained. The book of Genesis shows God himself officiating at the very first marriage between Adam and Eve. You see, marriage is God's invention. It's not a human invention. When two people marry, Jesus speaks of it as what God has joined together. And then he says, let no man separate. Marriage is God-ordained. Marriage is exclusive. You can't be married to more than one person. When the kings of the Old Testament did this, they were breaking the teaching of Scripture. Marriage is one man plus one wife and that for life. There's a controversial statement, if there ever was one in today's culture. In marriage, you are forsaking all others as the marriage vow says. You're eliminating all other love options and putting all your eggs in one basket. Marriage is permanent. It's in sickness and in health and in richness for richer and for poorer. Good days and bad days for better or worse till death do you part. Marriage is legal and public Marriage calls on all the authority structures, parents and family and government and God to witness this union. 
It invites anyone and everyone to hold you accountable to this commitment. It can't happen in the back seat of a car. In the Old Testament, couples would have an unusual ceremony to show the side of their marriage. They would cut an animal in half and they would walk through the two halves of this recently butchered animal. And as they did that, what they were saying to one another is we are entering a serious covenant. And should we ever break this covenant, what has happened to this animal? It's been torn apart. Well, let that happen to us. Let us be torn apart. This is so, so serious. Now, I've suggested that for a number of the marriage ceremonies that I've officiated at, but for some reason, the couples always say, no thanks, we'll just do rings. I'm still trying to figure out why. <laughs> marriage is the sharing of one's entire life with someone else, socially, economically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, materially, sexually. It's a commitment to radical vulnerability. So marriage is not for the faint-hearted. Next to whether you will join your life to Christ, as we were hearing about this morning, it's the single most important decision that you and I can make, the decision to join our life to another person in the covenant of marriage. So until you have two people that are willing to make this exclusive, permanent, legal, public, and vulnerable, sharing everything commitment, there should be no marriage. So that's the kind of promise to commit that marriage is, but there are two questions that come up in response to this idea of marriage as commitment. The first question is a question that married people sometimes ask, and the second question is a question that single or dating people sometimes ask. Question number one, what if my love for this person fades? Surely that marks the end. The main reason that so many marriages end up in trouble is because of a wrong definition of love. This question is based on a wrong definition of love. In today's culture, when someone says, I love you, what do they mean? Often what they mean is, I feel strong feelings of attraction to and chemistry with you. When I'm around you, my heart goes boom, pity boom. <laughs> my heart comes alive in your presence. You complete me. Do you see that? Love in our culture is something that happens inside of us and it's essentially about me. It's about what we receive from someone, what they do for us. But when God speaks about love, when God shows us what love is, it's the exact opposite. When God says, I love you, what he means is, although your attitudes and behavior sometimes repel me, still I will give everything to you. I commit to be there for you no matter what. I commit to lift you up, to serve you, to forgive you if need be, to help you become all that you're meant to be. 
That's how God loves us. And Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Do you see the difference? Love isn't something that happens inside of us. That's my feelings. As much as it's something that happens outside of me, the way I treat you. It's not essentially about what I receive from you, but what I give to you. It's not what you do for me, but what I do for you. So, singles and engaged couples. If you're planning on writing your own marriage vows, and I know that's becoming fashionable nowadays, don't write your marriage vows based on a wrong definition of marriage. Vows shouldn't focus on feelings and the present. They should focus on the future and on a commitment that we're making. Watch out for things like, you complete me. You make me feel so special. I love you. Christian vows are meant to focus on commitment regardless of feelings. And they're meant to focus on the future, not the present. It should be something more along the lines of, no matter what my feelings are on that day, or your behavior on that day, or the circumstances on that day, I promise to cherish you and love you. Five months from now, five years from now, five decades from now. To put it differently, the marriage vows make no mention of how in love you are with the person, but they focus on God's kind of love, which is a commitment to the future. So back to our question, what if my love for this person fades? Surely that marks the end. Can you see how that's based on a wrong definition of love? If love is primarily a feeling, of course it can and will fade. But if love is a commitment that hinges on your choice, not your feelings or the circumstances, then it doesn't ever have to fade. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. You might be thinking right now, Mr. Preacher, are you saying that my feelings aren't important? That's not what I'm saying. Feelings are important. Those initial knots in your stomach romantic feelings are great for kick-starting a relationship, but they are useless for sustaining a relationship. You can't build an, build an enduring relationship on feelings. The kind of feelings that come in the intense romantic phase of any relationship are by their very nature unreliable. When you're first interested in someone, and you know when you're thinking that they're pretty cool, and then what's really cool is when they start to think that you're pretty cool too, it's good for your ego. It's an ego kick. And like all kicks, an ego kick eventually fades. So those feelings will eventually fade by their very nature, but not just that. Feelings that come in that phase of romantic intensity aren't based on reality. They are based on your distorted impression of that person. And while you're feeling those feelings you've never felt before and your heart is going boom, pity boom, 
your natural tendency is to inflate their good points, superimposing on them all kinds of imaginary qualities, and turning a bit of a blind eye to whatever weaknesses, quirks, and sins are actually there. When you first fall in love, you think you love the person, but you know you really don't. When you first fall in love, you don't really love the person. That takes years. You actually love the idea of the person, and your idea is a distorted idea which time will reveal. To put it differently, I've said this a couple of times this year. Someone once said that there are three stages to love. Stage one, you love them but you don't know them. Stage two, now you know them and you don't love them. Stage three, the mature kind of love. It takes years, is now you know them and you love them. C.S. Lewis makes a great point in this connection. He says, people get from books the idea that if you married the right person, that you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find that they are no longer in love, they think they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed to a new partner, the glamour will eventually go out of the new love, just as it went out of the old love. Said another way, a relationship starts with romance, but it will end in despair unless it gets rebuilt on commitment. You might find the analogy of a fire helpful in understanding the place of these early romantic feelings in a relationship. When, you, when you're starting a fire, you need a match, you need some newspaper, you need some twigs, and you need some logs. Now, the match is obvious. That kind of gets the fire started. And in the initial phases, you kind of need the paper and the small twigs to get the fire going. But if that fire is going to continue, it must have something more substantial. And you put some logs into that fire. That's the commitment, those logs, a commitment that lasts the long haul. So for you singles, I hope that you're seeing that my intention, our intention, is to give you a no-holds-barred expose on marriage over the next four or five weeks. And I hope that this series is going to serve you well as it serves the marrieds well too. So I'm arguing that these initial love feelings will de-intensify. At times, they might even disappear. Here's the secret to maintaining and deepening those feelings. Renew your commitment, and love feelings will follow. Jesus gave us a helpful principle when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think we spoke about this last week. What he was saying is whatever you invest your life in because you perceive it to be valuable to you, there your heart will follow. Let me say this as simply as I can. Give love and then you will feel love. I know this never happens to you, but when you look at your husband or wife and think, you're horrible. 
you're preoccupied with other things, you don't treat me very well, you don't look that great, you don't deserve my love. In fact, you probably wouldn't even notice if I did love you anyway, so I'm going to withhold my love from you. You see, when you do that, all you're doing is reinforcing feelings of unlove. You're on a downward spiral. Withhold love, feel less love. Withhold love even more, feel even less love. But the Bible shows us a more excellent way. If you look at your spouse, like Sean and Tesney are looking at each other right now, And you think, this person doesn't deserve my love right now. I don't feel necessarily drawn to them in this moment. I have a choice. I can withdraw, treating them coldly, and get on with the rest of my life. Or I can do what I said I would do on my wedding day. I can treat them tenderly cherish them and lift them up. And then, when I think of how Christ treats me, that he didn't look down from the cross at all our sin and nastiness and horribleness. He didn't see all that and say, just die, all of you deserve to die. The Bible says that on that cross, as he looked down at all our horribleness, he said, Father, forgive them. Well, Jesus, help me to love this person the way that you love me and to treat them lovingly. Now, if that's how you process things mentally and that's how you pray, then you'll find that feelings of love and affection actually grow. You've stepped out of the downward spiral. Now it's give love, feel love, give even more love, feel even more love. Extensive research has shown that if you take a couple that is desperately unhappy, even on the edge of divorce, and if that couple says, hey, let's stick with our commitment, let's work at it, after five years, two-thirds of all these couples will say, we're happy. What were we thinking? Where did all those feelings of love and togetherness come from? They may have been missing for five years, but they came from commitment. Because where your treasure is there, your heart will follow. Let's get some more wisdom from C.S. Lewis. He was helping a married person navigate through the experience of a fading thrill in marriage. Here's what he said. He says, this is one little part of what Christ meant by saying a thing will not really live unless it first dies. It is simply no good trying to hold on to any thrill. That's the worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through the period of death and you'll find something new rising in its place. A quieter interest and happiness will follow and you will find you're living in a world of new thrills all the time. The thrills of a real love, 
built on enduring commitment and not fluctuating feelings. So what's the answer to our question? What if my love for this person fades? Surely that marks the end? The answer is no. When the feelings of being in love fade, and they do fade from time to time, then that is the beginning of love, real love, the God kind of love. And as you give love, you feel love. Question number two, isn't compatibility even more important than commitment? You're making it, you might be thinking, Mr. Preacher, you're making it sound like marriage is all about commitment, but surely even more basic than commitment is finding someone you're compatible with. This is a question singles often ask is, yeah, 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 you know, commitment, but, but should I find someone I'm compatible with? Well, compatibility, speaking to singles for a moment, perhaps to some marriages as well, compatibility is important in a number of ways. For example, first and foremost, you do need spiritual compatibility. It would be agony to marry someone who doesn't share your love for God and your belief in the gospel. You need compatibility of values and of general life direction. Of course, it will help if you have some overlapping interests. But having said that, let me raise two concerns about all this pursuit of compatibility. Firstly... This is important, beware of superficial compatibility. How many singles walk into a room, 20 people in the room, and immediately you disqualify 17 of them? This one's too tall, this one's too short, this one's too fat, this one's too thin. This one's not dressed stylishly enough. The media has exposed us to all these hot and sexy people and it's damaged us. We think we'll find this soulmate who is at the same time super hot. And us guys especially have been brainwashed, brainwashed to think that we'll find someone even hotter than us. <laughs> when I meet a guy who's hoping to find the Kenyan version of Jada Pinkett, I sometimes want to say to him, but look, buddy, you're no Will Smith. <laughs> One journalist wrote an article called Picky Picky, which looks at how people have increasingly become superficial in the choice of a partner. He tells of one guy who broke up with a girl because he didn't like her elbows. Another girl broke up with a guy because he had short black socks. He explains how we've got an overdeveloped flaw detection mechanism. So guys, girls, turn your flaw detection mechanism down about 10 notches and give the 17 out of 20 a chance. You heard that sometimes? But there are no guys in this church. But there are no girls in this church. Secondly, this is looking at something I said earlier, but from a different angle, realize that no one is perfectly compatible. Read my lips. Marriage is hard. Some marriages are hard all of the time. Some marriages are hard some of the time. And the reason for that is that no two people are perfectly compatible. 
Listen to a brilliant quote on this by ethics professor Stanley Howes. He says, the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage is primarily about personal fulfillment and happiness is very destructive to marriage. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will marry the right person. This is profound what he says. He says, this overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage, which is this. We always marry the wrong person. Listen to this. We never really know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. <laughs> For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Now that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not much. In the final analysis, compatibility is important, but commitment is even more important. So we've looked at the promise of commitment that marriage is. Now, very briefly and in closing, we want to talk about the priority of marriage. Ephesians 5.31 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother. That's huge. Be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Marriage is a commitment to prioritize this person above all other people. Even our mother and father. That's huge. Parents, one day you're going to have to let go. Apparently, Barack Obama spoke about dropping his daughter off at college. He was asked, what, what was it like? And he said it was, it was a bit like open heart surgery. Part of the letting go process, the final stage of which is marriage when a man or a woman leaves their father and mother. The marriage relationship is the most fundamental of human relationships. It takes priority over every other relationship. No other human being should get more of your love, your energy, your effort and commitment than your marriage partner. The challenge is we tend to get caught up in other earthly commitments that become more important to us than our marriages. Tim Keller calls them pseudo-spouses. We'll look at two very briefly. Our career might be a pseudo-spouse. Particularly for men, you spotted her, you made a decision, you wooed her, you engaged her, you married her, and now that's done and dusted, you need a new challenge. Often found in our work or career. I heard a saying that accurately redefined success like this. If your career succeeds, but your marriage fails, you fail. But if your career fails, and your marriage succeeds, you succeed. Career may be a pseudo-spouse. Our children may be a pseudo-spouse. First, our kids do genuinely, desperately need us. 
Second, if the emotional intimacy of a marriage wanes, we tend to look to our kids for the love and affection that we long for. But if you love your children more than your spouse, your entire family will suffer. Put kids before your spouse and you damage both your kids and your marriage. Put your spouse before your kids and you strengthen both your kids and your marriage. Other pseudo-spouses to watch out for are money, people's opinions, your parents' opinions, your parents' money, your parents' failure, your parents' way of doing things, or your closest friends. That's all we've got time for today. We want to baptize some people in a few moments. We've spoken about how marriage is a promise to commit. Would you believe that we are hardly scratching the surface of what marriage is? We've only looked at the first half of a single verse. And in the next four weeks, we want to look at Ephesians 5, verse 21 to 33, like I said. And we want to dig up diamonds that will set all of us up, whether singles, marrieds, dating people, or divorcees, to make sane decisions in this area of love and marriage. Next week, we're going to look at, we look this week at the promise of marriage. Next week, we're going to look at the power of marriage. Because if you're anything like me, when you hear stuff like this, I feel overwhelmed right now. Because if that's what marriage is, if marriage is a total commitment and a prioritizing of someone above everything else, well, then I'm terrified and feel completely inadequate for the task. And you know what? I am inadequate. You are inadequate. Which is why next week we're going to discover the power that Christ makes available within marriage. But I don't want to give away more than that. Please, as you're listening to this series, ask the Holy Spirit for marrieds, singles, divorcees, widowers, widows, engaged couples. Have them listen to the podcast online maybe. Bring them along next week to be a good investment of their time. Let's pray for us. God, we want to thank you for this mystery of marriage. We want to thank you for the picture it is of your relationship with us. And God, I pray that uh, through this series, through what has come from your word today, you would chip away at errors and misconception, even lies in our thinking, and replace them with the powerful truth of your word. God, I want to pray for those of us who have a scarred view of marriage. Maybe because of our parents' marriage. Maybe because of our own first-hand experience in relationships. God, you said that once we know the truth, truth would set us free. God, I pray for people getting, getting ready for marriage, people not yet married, people looking forward to marriage, or perhaps not looking forward to marriage. God, whatever the case be, let truth come in the name of Jesus. But I pray for marriages that are desperately in need of strengthening in different areas. God, through your word, let truth be a new foundation. Remove all that the enemies put in through media, through our experiences. God, replace it with the truth of your word. And God, we pray that because of this, that marriages represented in this room, present and future marriages, would know a new level of flourishing 
pray that singles who want to get married or don't want to get married would have a new level of wisdom and insight. That every one tribe, married or single, would be able to speak about this important area of love and marriage with a new level of authority and wisdom that comes from above. And God, because of that, we ask that there be a fresh wave of flourishing of marriages in this great city of Nairobi that makes the city look a little bit more like heaven than hell. And that brings glory to you. And everyone said, Amen.